Okay, in last week's study, we encountered Noah making one of the worst decisions of his life, getting drunk and involved in some abhorrent sexual activity with his son, Ham. And if you missed last week, you're like, what? Just go back and listen to it. It is as sordid as it sounds and even worse. In contrast, Noah's two other sons, Shem and Japheth, did everything they could to honor their father in his humiliated state, working to protect and cover him in his embarrassment. When Noah sobered up and realized what had happened, he declared that Ham's son was cursed because Ham unrepentantly pursued abhorrent sexual behavior. It wasn't a curse that Noah made as much as it was a curse that he observed because he saw that Ham's son, Canaan, and his other children and his whole family line would inevitably follow in their father's footsteps and pick up the values and behaviors that they saw in their father, which would ultimately lead them to destruction and being cursed in all kinds of areas of their life. Also in contrast, Noah then pronounced blessings on Shem and Japheth who had not exploited the situation and handled it in a much more godly way. This week we're going to continue the story with the famous Table of Nations of Genesis 10, which lays out how things played out among the family lines of Noah's three sons. We'll get to see how that all worked out. And we'll also encounter a strange character named Nimrod, or as he may be better called, Antichrist version 1.0. So let's jump in at verse 1. In Genesis chapter 10 it says, now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Now what's going to follow will be a total of 70 different groups that come from the three sons of Noah. And out of them will come every ethnicity, every culture, and every society that has ever existed, which raises a logical question, well then how did we get the different ethnicities that exist on the earth today? I mean, if they all, if all came from the same family, how come we have different skin tones and facial features and all these sorts of things? Well, I use the term ethnicity intentionally because, and this is not just hyperbole, the, the Bible is clear, there really is only one race. There's the human race. The Bible says we're all one blood, literally. And the question we're discussing is, is how did we come to have so many different ethnicities? Firstly, we should keep in mind that scholars agree that Ham was dark-skinned. His name literally means hot or, or black. And we can assume that Shem and Japheth likely had their own distinguishing characteristics as well. And so a fair assumption would be that the Lord put the genetic coding for multiple ethnicities into Adam and Eve's DNA all the way back at the beginning. Think of it this way, just as if you had a mixed race couple have a child, there would be the potential for the child to be the race of the mom, the race of the dad, or a mix of the two because there's all that genetic information being added to the equation when mom and dad come together to produce this child. So it would seem that what the Lord did is he simply put all of the options for the main ethnic groups into Adam and Eve's DNA at the very beginning so that Shem, Ham, and Japheth all may have had different facial characteristics. They all may have had different color skin tones. And if not them, then within one generation or two generations because that information was in their genetics. And if you study anthropology at all, just very basic anthropology, you'll find that the various ethnicities and physical features in the world today 
all trace back to a very, very small group of core ethnicities. And everything we have today are variations of that small core of ethnic identities. So make a note of this. The genetic coding necessary to produce the world's ethnicities was likely placed in Adam and Eve's DNA from the beginning. It was likely placed in Adam and Eve's DNA from the beginning. Also, as we talked about before, the forces of adaptation are very real. We're talking about natural selection within a species. If a person with light skin or dark skin moved to a region with lots and lots of sunshine, the light-skinned person is going to deal with some issues that the darker-skinned person will not. The light-skinned person is going to probably deal with things like melanomas and getting skin cancers and getting sick and not being able to work as much and provide as much and dying sooner and not reproducing as much. And so very quickly, within just a few generations, through natural selection, the darker-skinned peoples are going to do better in that hotter climate and they're going to become the dominant people group passing on those genetics to future generations. And this would explain why generally and traditionally you've had darker skinned people in sunny warm places and lighter skinned people in colder places. The name Shem means glory, Shabbat in the Hebrew. It speaks of the glory of God, namely that, that God's glory would be revealed through the line of Shem. And that line would include the Shemites, which would include the Jewish people and the Arab people as well. Through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would come the Jews. Through Abraham, Ishmael, and Esau would come the Arabs. The name Japheth means enlarged one or ruler. And you might recall in the previous chapter, Noah pronounced this blessing. He said, blessed be the Lord, it's on your outlines, the God of Shem, and may Canaan, that's the son of Ham, be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and may he dwell in the tents of Shem. So Japheth will be the ruler, but only as long as he is covered by Shem. So, so what, what does that mean? Well, as you study through world history, it becomes clear that the descendants of Japheth became one of the dominant cultures in the world. They became the sons of Europe. However, what most people don't realize is that Europe spent centuries and centuries in a place of darkness until it was enlightened by the gospel. When European cultures embraced the gospel, there was this incredible enlightenment and advancement in their culture, in their morality. But before then, secular history tells us that much of Europe was essentially full of barbarians and primal pagans. You can go and look at the, the ancient history of England during the first three centuries, Scotland, Ireland, places like that. Much of Europe... And they were pretty savage, brutal, primitive places until the gospel begins to penetrate and change culture. So that's what we see here. We see that Japheth has a blessing to rule, but where he embraces the God of Shem. So continuing in verse 2, the sons of Japheth were Gomer. And that's what we would know today as Germany. Magog. Now, if you're into biblical prophecy, you'll recall the name Magog along with two other names that appear in this verse, Tubal and Meshech, because of their connection to Ezekiel 38 and 39. In those two chapters of Ezekiel, these three names are listed as being part of an invasion of Israel that comes down from the north sometime in the end times, either just before the rapture or just after the rapture. Magog is another name for Russia. 
Tubal is the old name for the Russian city of Tobolsk, and Meshech is the ancient name for Moscow. Even Herodotus, the, the famous Roman historian of antiquity, affirmed in his writings that in the ancient world, Magog was the term given to refer to the Scythians, or as we know them today, the Russians. And I share that just to point out, it's not wacky Bible prophecy guys who try to make something out of Ezekiel 38 and 39 that isn't there. Even ancient secular historical sources tell us that Magog is speaking about the Russians. Then it goes on and it says Madai, which refers to the Medes and the Persians. Those would be the present day Kurdish people. Very interesting. The Kurds reside mostly in, in four Middle Eastern countries. They have no country of their own and they're considered a thorn in the flesh by all the countries that they live in. If you've followed uh, geopolitics at all over the last decade, then you know there's problems with the Kurds in northern Iraq. There's problems with the Kurds right now in northern Syria. They're always fighting to get their own territory, but they don't actually have their own country. And the reason that Iraq and Iran never ever get along is because Iraqis are primarily Arabs. They're descendants of Shem, while Iranians are primarily Persian. They're descendants of Japheth. Iranians don't speak Arabic. They speak Farsi because Iranians are technically not Arabs. They're a completely different ethnic group. Then it says Javan. That's a reference to Greece. Tubal and Meshech, Tobolsk and Moscow. And Tyrus or Italy as we know it today. Then Moses goes on to record a little bit more about the sons of Gomer, the founders of Germany. So it says, the sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Rephath, and Tagarma. Tagarma is in the region of Turkey and Armenia today. But interestingly, there's still an internal ethnic tension in Israel today that goes back to all of this. When the Romans destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, destroyed the temple, leveled the city, the Jews scattered across the world in the event known as the diaspora, the spreading. And a large group of Jews, Ashkenazi Jews as they're known, who came from the line of Ashkenaz, settled in Poland, Austria, and Germany. And they grew by the millions until the Holocaust hit in World War II. A relatively large amount of those Ashkenazi Jews who survived the Holocaust returned to Israel when it became a nation in 1948. The other large group of ethnic Jews who are in Israel today are the Sephardic Jews. In the diaspora, they settled in Spain and Portugal and in the Mediterranean region. And these groups actually look different. One looks Middle Eastern, one looks more European. They have different styles, they have different cultural nuances. And one of the reasons for this internal tension in Israel is because the Ashkenazi Jews have traditionally been the power brokers. They've held power pretty much since 1948. Benjamin Netanyahu is an Ashkenazi Jew, has much more European than Middle Eastern features. And so there's that tension that remains today because Ashkenaz came in the family line of Japheth who was prophesied all the way back here in Genesis 10 to be a ruler over the line of Shem, which would be the other Jews that include the Sephardic Jews there today. In verse 4 it says, the sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Tarshish is likely the British Isles, you remember it, as the destination of Jonah when he was running from the Lord in a very futile manner by ship. Then it says, Kittim and Dodanim, from these the coastland people of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. 
Now we get to the sons of Ham, the Hamitic people who settled primarily in Africa and a little bit of the Middle East. And just notice some of the names that are going to come up as we work through this in this line of Ham, which was cursed. The sons of Ham were Cush. That is modern-day Ethiopia. In, in Jeremiah 13:23, it talks about the people of Cush as having very distinct skin. And in Isaiah 45:14, it talks about them being very tall. Mizraim, that's Egypt. Put, that's Libya. And Canaan. Canaan, of course, is the area we know today as Israel. And some of the descendants of Ham, the Canaanites, would settle in the promised land of Israel while the Israelites were in slavery in Egypt. Before God had the Israelites take them out when they came into the land. You'll recall the story when Israel goes into the promised land, God says the Canaanites are so immoral, so depraved, so wicked, they've refused to repent for over 400 years. I need them to be annihilated. And God gives that command for reasons we don't have time to get into in today's study. We've talked about before but the Canaanites show up in the line of Ham. Verse seven, the sons of Cush were Seba, Havila, Sabta, Rama, and Sabtaka, and the sons of Rama were Sheba and Dedan. Sheba and Dedan is present day Saudi Arabia. And I point that out because they're gonna pop up again and again, especially in relationship to Ezekiel 38 and 39. They're gonna protest Russia's invasion of Israel. Again, no time to get into all that today, just trying to hit some points as we go through this. Verse eight, Cush begot Nimrod, underline Nimrod, Nimrod. We need to slow down and look at this character a little bit closely. Nimrod's name means literally rebel. He is the quintessential rebel and is in reality a prototype, a picture of, an illustration of the coming ultimate rebel known as Antichrist. So write this down and we'll unpack it. Nimrod is a prototype of the end times Antichrist, a prototype of the end times Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, it talks about Antichrist, that coming world leader who will usher in a revived Roman Empire, a unified Europe under his rule, and he will seek to establish a single religion. He'll be powerful, he'll be charismatic, he'll be persuasive, he'll be an amazing individual. But the Bible tells us that his identity will not be revealed until the church is taken by Jesus in the rapture. The term antichrist means against the Lord or literally in place of the Lord. And so to the world, antichrist is gonna seem like a savior, some sort of Messiah who works miracles and brokers peace where that seems impossible. Second Thessalonians 2.8 calls him the lawless one because truly he will be like Nimrod, an ultimate rebel. And Second Thessalonians goes on in verse nine of chapter two to tell us that the antichrist will come with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and that that power will be according to the working of Satan. In other words, he's gonna be empowered by Satan to do miraculous things. So with that in mind, watch what Nimrod does. Verse eight in our text goes on to say, he began to be a mighty one on the earth. In the original language, the term mighty implies that he was a warrior and a tyrant. And Bible scholars say we know that he was a tyrant because at this time there were no different people groups to fight among each other yet. So who was he fighting? Well, he's fighting his own people to rule over them as a tyrant by force. 
He was the first world dictator and was able to unite people under his tyrannical rule. And he was able to apparently do mighty things, things that astounded and amazed people. Verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. I find that verse hilariously redundant for some reason, by the way. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, which is where we get the saying from Nimrod was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Oh, you don't say. Thank you for the detail. It should actually be translated, though, when I put this on your outline. The literal translation should read, he became a fearless hunter in defiance of the Lord. In defiance of the Lord. In the very next verse, we're going to be told that Nimrod was both the founder and first king of Babylon. Even as Antichrist will be the king of a revived city of Babylon in our world, which is described in Revelation 17 and 18. And if all of this is a bit confusing to you, that's okay. That's okay. The big point is that Nimrod is a type who points to Antichrist who will rise to power on the global stage shortly after the rapture of the church takes place in the end times. Verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom, Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel, Babel. In the original language, Babel means gateway to God or, or heaven's gate. It's the words Bab and El. If you know anything about Hebrew, even basic Hebrew, you know El means God and Bab means gate. So gateway to God. And if you can grasp the significance of Babylon's founding that we're going to read about here in Genesis 10, you'll understand why it plays such a vital role throughout the Bible, even all the way up to the book of Revelation. Jerusalem is God's city, it's Zion. It's the place, the zip code, the postal code that God chose on planet Earth to be his distinct, special piece of real estate. God said, that's mine, that place right there. That's for me, that's for my people. Babylon is the place that Satan chose to be his headquarters on the earth. He said, that's my place. That's where I'm going to do my thing. Those are going to be my people. There is a literal Jerusalem. There is a literal Babylon. A literal Babylon, a literal city of Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. But for both of them two, there are two kingdom forces behind those, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. So there's spiritual and mystical Babylon as well, and this would be the kingdom of Satan that is behind the entire world system, the world economic system. Everything in the world that is opposed to God, that has its origins in Satan, is the system of Babylon. Then there is the kingdom of God, Zion, the kingdom of God, and everything that he stands for and everything that he is bringing about on the planet of the earth. So there are literal places, but there's also literally spiritual kingdoms and forces behind both Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon will give birth to paganism, rebellion against God, and even humanism. Those beliefs that are so culturally dominant even in our day. Babylon is at the root of all of it. All of it. And we're going to find out even more than we can realize. The Bible tells us that Antichrist will be empowered by Satan. And when you understand the typology that's going on with Nimrod, as I said earlier, it's safe to assume that Nimrod was empowered by Satan as well. He was likely given strategies, charisma, and the, the tools that he needed to rise to power and establish Satan's work on the earth in Babylon at that time, just as will be the case with Antichrist. Well, in addition to Babylon, we're told that Nimrod also founded Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Shinar. 
From that land, he went to Assyria and built, this is interesting, Nineveh. He built Nineveh. Remember Nineveh from the story of Jonah? It became the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Jonah wanted nothing to do with it because the Ninevites were known for their incredible cruelty and brutality. They had almost no moral compass and took delight in torturing their enemies. They had decimated and enslaved much of northern Israel before Jonah went there in 722 B.C. And then the Babylonians would be the follow-up act in 605 B.C. when they would sweep into southern Israel, Judah, and destroy Jerusalem, burning the temple to the ground. Both Babylon and Assyria, those two forces who invaded Israel, took Israel away in slavery, were founded by Nimrod. Then we're told that Nimrod also founded Rehoboth, Ir, Kalah, and Resen between Nineveh and Kalah, that is the principal city. Mizraim begot Ludim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtahim, Pathrasim, and Caslahim, from whom came the, and then underline, Philistines and Kaphtorim. This is like a greatest hits list of the enemies of God's people. The Philistines are one of the great traditional enemies of Israel, most famous for their warrior champion, Goliath. Goliath. Now, Bible students, think with me for a minute. Goliath is described and known for being a giant. N not just a tall guy, but an unnatural giant who apparently had other brothers who were also giants. Now, knowing what we've studied thus far in Genesis, what does that bring to mind? The Nephilim of Genesis 6. That's right, this offspring between woman and fallen angels that produced this race of giants. And we're told in Genesis 6-4 that there were Nephilim and there were giants on the earth in the days of Genesis 6, but also it says in the days after the flood after the flood. So follow the flow here. Ham gets into sexual immorality and abominations and he passes it on to his kid and there would seem to be the possibility that when there is some type of activity involving Nephilim conspiracy on a smaller scale after the flood, the place where that goes down is in the descendants of Ham, the place where Satan knows people are going to be in abhorrent and bizarre sexual activity. He shows up there, and among the Canaanites is one of those places. Among the Philistines is one of those places where these people show up. And as you get into all the genealogies in Scripture, that's what you notice. They were in the promised Land. You remember that when Joshua sends the spies into there and they come back and they say there's giants all over the place because that is where all the descendants of Ham went, all the people who were opposed to God because they weren't with the people of God who were in slavery in Egypt at that time. So, very, very interesting stuff. The sexual immorality of, of Ham's line just seemed to pave the way for all kinds of bad stuff down the line. Verse 15, Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, the Jebusite, the Amorite, and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archite, and the Sinite. Many of these people groups have been extinct for a long, long time, but as you may know, the Chinese people are also known as the Sino people, and that term comes here from the mention of the Sinite people, and these would be the roots of the Chinese, Japanese, and other Asian peoples. They are all descendants of the Hamitic people, the descendants of Ham. Verse 18, the Arvidite, the Zemurite, 
and the Hamathite. Afterward, the families of the Canaanites were dispersed, and the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go towards Gerar, as far as Gaza. Then as you go toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboam, as far as Lashah. And now we find that Sodom and Gomorrah also were cities that came to be through this line of Ham. More cursed generations involved in more abhorrent sexual activity to their ultimate destruction. These were the sons of Ham according to their families, according to their languages, in their lands, and in their nations. And we mentioned it last week, just thinking, I wonder what Ham would have thought if he could have seen the future, how this would play out in his kids, in his grandkids, in his great-grandkids. I wonder if he would have had a different approach when he was having the attitude of, of who cares, I'm going to do what I want. It's just going to affect me. It's not going to ruin the world or anything like that. Calm down. It's not that big of a deal. I'm just doing what I want. I wonder how different he would have felt if he could have seen what that would have led to down the line. And as we mentioned last week, dads especially, be vigilant about what you allow in your life and about what you allow in your family. Because it doesn't ever just stop with us. It gets passed on to our children. And we want to pass down blessings, not curses, to our kids. Verse 21. And children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth the elder. This is the first mention of the Eber people who would later become known as the uh, Eberus, Eberus, the Hebrews. Shem is the father of the Hebrew people, the Israelites. And that's why people who are known today for being anti-Jewish are called anti-Semites. The original term there was anti-Shemites. That's where the term comes from. And by the way, the term Hebrew just means crossed over, one who is crossed over, tracing back, of course, to the history of the Jewish people entering the promised land by crossing over the Jordan River. Verse 22, the sons of Shem were Elam, Asur, Arphaxad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his day the earth was divided. You might want to underline that, the earth was divided. And his brother's name was Joktan. So this dude, Peleg, is an interesting guy for one reason, because we're told that during the days of his life, the earth was divided. And, and the word that's used there in the original Hebrew for earth is Eretz, which when used in scripture, never refers to the people of the earth, but always to the physical, geological earth itself. And that's interesting, because one of the common questions that comes up regarding the flood is, well, how did animals get all over the world. How did the kangaroo get from the mountains of Ararat in, in Turkey over to Australia? And I'm going to give you a, a short answer. There's more information on answers in Genesis.com. There's a few possibilities, but I think the most credible is that after the flood, the cataclysmic geological changes to the world resulted in a short, brief, but incredibly intense series of ice ages, three or four mini ice ages. Not slow changes over time, but cataclysmic, sudden changes that are the reason we found things like mammoths with tropical vegetation still in their mouths and stomachs that were flash frozen in place. 
And during the ice ages, this is when these polar ice caps form, the massive glaciers that we have on the North and South Poles to this day. And the water that was needed to create those ice caps was essentially sucked up from the oceans very quickly. And when that happened, the sea levels would have lowered noticeably because we're talking about that much water being used for an incredible amount of ice. It would have lowered the sea level, which would have resulted in both land bridges and ice bridges emerging that would have linked the Earth's continents, allowing animals to migrate all over the planet. And many of these land bridges are still in existence today between the continents. You can see them if you have an underwater topographical map of the world's oceans. It's just that today those land bridges are underwater because as these ice ages came to an end, part of the polar ice caps began to melt and the sea levels rose again. And apparently that's what happened during the days of Peleg. The continents became isolated through one process or another, most likely through these mini ice ages ending, part of the polar ice caps melting and the sea levels rising again. As I said, that's a super fast, very brief overview. Check out Answers in Genesis if you want to know more. Verse 26, Joktan begot Almodad. You know what? There's a whole lot of names here, and I'm just going to skip down to verse 32. These were the families of the sons of Noah, according to their generations in their nations. And from these, the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. So now before we go on, I need to fill you in or refresh you, depending on how long you've been with us, on a few more things regarding Nimrod and Babylon. From ancient Babylonian writings, we learn more of the history and or mythology of Nimrod. There is both history and mythology there. We're not entirely sure where one ends and the other begins. We know Nimrod was real. We know he was the founder of Babylon. The Bible tells us that. But there's many variations around the myths of uh, Babylon and Nimrod, but they all have the same core characters and plot developments. And so this is an example of how the story usually goes. So Nimrod meets a woman named Semiramis in a brothel, the tinder of the ancient world. He's completely taken with her, but her occupation doesn't make her a fitting wife for an emperor, obviously. So what they do is the two of them get together and they begin to share the story that she emerged from the sea in front of Nimrod as a virgin sent by the gods, especially for Nimrod. And they marry and very quickly declare themselves to be divine. They declare themselves to be gods. And I think that's very credible because we know that that's one of the things that Antichrist is going to do. So knowing that Nimrod is a type, that would seem to line up. And Nimrod gives Semiramis the title Queen of Heaven. And the day comes eventually when Nimrod dies or he's murdered, depending on the variation of the story. Years later, Semiramis has not remarried. She's just enjoying a privileged life as half of the God couple. She's apparently enjoying uh, the perks of marriage without being married because she becomes illegitimately pregnant. And this is kind of a problem, but not a problem that Semiramis can't solve. Remember, she solved the whole problem of her background with a story about her emerging from the sea as a god. So she just comes up with another story. And she tells everyone, well, this is wonderful. It's wonderful because I am magically, supernaturally pregnant, and no man was involved. It, it's a miracle child. Not only that, but she tells everyone, and, and here's the amazing thing. I was made pregnant by the spirit of Nimrod. But, but not only that, I am also pregnant with the reincarnation 
of Nimrod. So she claimed she was pregnant with Nimrod, but also by Nimrod. I mean, I guess if you're going to take a swing, then swing for the fences, right? Not only that, but she tells everyone, hey, you know that, that prophecy that our old, old, old forefathers used to talk about way, way back in uh, the garden, the one that promised that, that God would send a child to save mankind, the seed of the woman? Well, well I'm that woman, and, and this is that child. And so the child is born and named Tammuz, and, and he's considered to be divine from birth. He's considered to be born with superpowers, and he's treated like a god his whole life. But then there's a problem. One day Tammuz is out hunting, and he gets gored by a wild boar, which is not a fate really befitting someone who's supposed to be a god. But once again, not a problem Semiramis can't solve. She tells everyone, more great news. Tammuz has come back to life. Unfortunately, none of you can see him because he, he's ascended and has become the sun god. And, and so the only way you can really see him is, is by seeing the sun up in the sky and knowing that that is Tammuz looking down on us with his fiery power. And she went on to say, but you can't really see him as he is. You, you can't talk to him because he's, he's in the heavens, but because I am the queen of heaven, I can talk to him. I can commune with him. I am the mediator between God and man. And so if you will worship me, the queen of heaven, if you will perform the religious ceremonies I require, to me, the queen of heaven, if you will put my image everywhere, if you will make payments to me, the queen of heaven, if you will pray the rosary, I'm sorry, I got confused for a second there, sorry. And thus was born the mother and son pagan religious system that quickly spread across the whole earth. And if you can't put two and two together right now, I'm not going to make the controversial statement. The Lord might be protecting you from being offended. And so you might be thinking, you know, Jeff, that, that's a little weird because um, it sounds really familiar. Like, really familiar. So is Christianity just just a ripoff of Babylonian pagan mythology? Well, not at all, because do you realize that after God, there's probably no one in existence who knows the Bible better than Satan. He is a student of the scriptures because he has searched every inch of it looking for any information he can gain that would help him to derail the plans of God. And we see that throughout the scriptures, throughout the Old Testament. And he knew the Proto-Evangelium, the first prophecy in Scripture, Genesis 3.15. He knew that God had given the prophecy when Adam and Eve were removed from the Garden of Eden that he would send redemption, he would send a Savior to the world in the form of the child who would be born to a woman without the involvement of a man. So Satan knew this. So he did everything he could to discredit God's plan by creating a counterfeit and trying to water down the impact of the virgin birth. Now when someone creates a counterfeit, the whole goal is to have it be as much like the original as possible, otherwise it doesn't work as a counterfeit. There's nobody making counterfeit $17 bills. Do you know why? Because everyone would know it's a counterfeit. 
And the whole point is that it's supposed to be as much like the real thing as possible to deceive as many people as possible. And it's a tactic that has worked well enough that you still see this idea repeated in memes on the internet today claiming that Christianity is just a ripoff of Babylonian pagan myths. You get into the details of it and you find there's actually a whole, whole lot of differences and there's actually evidence for what we believe as opposed to what Semiramis claimed. Well, don't leave yet because there's even more. All the way back in the book of Jeremiah, I put this on your outlines, Jeremiah the prophet wrote this. He said, the children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the, and then underline, queen of heaven, the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? So here's what we know. Immediately, there was a pagan entity known as the queen of heaven that people would worship. She was a queen, and this is who it was. It was Semiramis. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. So God's not very happy about this. So you have Semiramis, who's the queen of heaven. She's the queen mother. She is the head of paganism in the world during her time. She has a child, and that child's name is Tammuz. As the days get shorter and shorter in December and the winter solstice approaches, they believed that December 24th was the day that Tammuz died. But on December 25th, they believed he was reborn. And they would symbolize his birth by placing a Yule log in the fire. To celebrate his rebirth the next day on December 25th, they would head off into the forest and chop down a tree. And then they would bring that tree into their house and they would decorate it. In Egypt, they would use young palm trees. In Rome, they would use pear trees because paganism is paganism. It appears in all kinds of different cultures. And Jeremiah actually wrote about this too. It's also on your outlines. He wrote, For the customs of the peoples are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest... The work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. Does it sound at all familiar to anyone? So as Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire in the 4th century, the pagan priests were all reassigned to the new state Christian church in the Roman Empire. And those pagan priests brought in all their pagan practices with them. And those pagan beliefs went back as far as Baal worship in the Old Testament and all the way back to Babylon. It would be Isis in the Greek or Semiramis in the original. But we don't celebrate Tammuz being born on December 25th. Who do we celebrate being born? Jesus. Jesus. But wait, there's even more. Because between the 25th of March and the 25th of December is exactly nine months. And so the pagans of the day celebrated a festival that was called Ishtar on March 25th. Nine months before they celebrated the birth of Tammuz. So they believed that Tammuz was conceived in his reincarnated state around March 25th, around the end of March, beginning of April. Ishtar sure sounds a lot like another holiday we celebrate around the end of March, beginning of April. Easter, 
It's the exact same word translated into English. So mommy gets pregnant on Ishtar and nine months later, Tammuz is born. Ishtar was a fertility celebration and they would celebrate it with symbols of fertility like eggs and the creature most known for reproducing at a rapid rate, the rabbit, the bunny, that's right. And we made it a Christian holiday when it became fused with the state of Rome in the fourth century. And I'm sure I've said this before that there were many purists at the time when those holidays were changed to Christian holidays that were riding their carts around with bumper stickers that said, keep Ishtar in Easter and you know, keep Tammuz in Christmas. And I'm sure that many pagans were dismayed at how their holidays were being hijacked by the man and turned into something other than what they were originally meant to be all about. So, so side note. Maybe, maybe, maybe we shouldn't really be getting too worked up about the commercialization and exploitation of Christmas, seeing as it was pagan to begin with, we reassigned it, and in some cases, it's simply going back to its original roots. And so I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, I didn't come to church on Mother's Day so that you could ruin Christmas and Easter for me. That's not why I'm here. Can't you just tell me Jesus loves moms and let me go home? So I celebrate Easter. I celebrate Christmas. We're told to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus because we choose to celebrate Jesus and we choose to celebrate symbols that are not what they were 2,000 years ago. It's different now. But, but, but here's what we need to say is if any Christian did have a conviction about this stuff, they really wouldn't be all that weird. There's a really good case for not celebrating these two holidays if that's the way the Holy Spirit convicts you. But if you want to look into it, you'll find that Jesus in the Gospels is noted as celebrating what's called the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication was Hanukkah. Hanukkah was not a biblically or scripturally mandated holiday, but Jesus goes to Jerusalem and he partakes in the celebration of it. And you can look up the whole history of Hanukkah if you want to get into that. And I know that that's not the same as something totally pagan, but the point is that Jesus celebrated holidays that weren't scripturally mandated. And so I think that if you're thankful for the incarnation and celebrating that, I don't think Jesus is intimidated by the fact that you're doing it on a date that used to be associated with something else. I think Jesus owns everything, including December 24th and 25th. So I think that's absolutely fine. Everybody can breathe out and go, okay, that's good. I was worried there for a moment. So chapter 11. Chapter 11 actually takes place before chapter 10. Chapter 10 gives us the overview, the family lines of Noah's sons, but chapter 11 details how they came to be divided into different people groups that went to different parts of the world and spoke different languages. Chapter 11, verse 1, now the whole earth at this time had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. By they, they mean everybody. Everybody settled on the plain of Shinar. So now we zoom in on, on this time when after the flood, humanity had one language, one culture, and everyone is settled together in this region known as the plain of Shinar. So what's wrong with that? Well, remember what the Lord said back in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. When the family of Noah got off the ark, it's on your outlines. It says, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and, and then underline this phrase, fill the earth. Fill the earth. 
So in other words, go out, spread out, populate the earth. And instead of doing that, people were clustering together in this same region, the plain of Shinar. Was this simply an oversight? Did they, did they just forget to obey the Lord? Or was it like, you go, no, you go, no, you go, no, you go. Well, as we keep reading, things are going to become clearer. As we read through these next few verses, understand that, that we can deduce that the person driving the ideas that are about to be presented here in these next two verses, the person driving those ideas, casting the vision behind these ideas that got people on board was Nimrod. This was under his rule, and, and he wanted to get them on board with the idea of constructing the world's first capital city, which we know was Babel, Babylon. We read in verse 3, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. The reason is just because there was no real rock available for them to use on the plain. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. The idea there is just really, really, really tall. Taller than any structure that had ever been conceived in history up to this point. Let us make a name and then underline for ourselves, lest, underline that word, lest, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So Nimrod, empowered by Satan, inspired by Satan, rallies the people not simply to build a city and a tower, but to do it as an intentional act of defiance against God's instruction to spread out and fill the earth. He says, let's do this to make sure that we don't spread out and fill the earth. So write this down. Nimrod rallied the people to defy God's instruction to spread out and fill the earth. To defy God's instruction to spread out and fill the earth. Instead of rallying men to serve the Lord, Nimrod rallies men to defy the Lord and make a name for themselves rather than worshiping the name of God. And this is the birth of the idea that man is essentially God. And man's pursuit should be about man's greatness and man's glory. It's the idea that there's no need for God because we're enough. And obviously this is still a massively popular idea today. And the reason why is obvious. The message that you are really, really special and can do what you want and can make things that you want to have happen, happen, that sort of message is absolutely timeless because it's what our sinful nature longs to hear and it's what our sinful nature longs to believe is true. We want to believe that we can do whatever we want with no consequences, that we can realize any reality that we would desire to exist. And that's why people are still buying into this to this day. That's why on your Facebook feed, there are so many self-help guys saying, I'm going to help you realize your full potential. If you can dream it, you can do it, blah, blah, blah. Because that's what our sinful nature wants to believe is true. In addition to building the city, there's this business of the tower. <coughs> the infamous Tower of Babel. Historians tell us this would have been what's known as a ziggurat, a religious structure that's likely square and tapered inward as you ascended, like a pyramid but not quite as radical and with stairs going around the outside of the structure that you could use to climb it. And the purpose of a ziggurat was to elevate yourself literally and symbolically to get closer to the gods in the hopes that they would come down and meet you at what would have been a dedicated sacred space at the top of the ziggurat. There might have been an altar where sacrifices were made or ceremonies were conducted at the top of the structure. In building this, 
uh, Nimrod and the people of Babel showed that they didn't want the living God to be their God. They weren't interested. They wanted to build the structure to seek other gods. They wanted a second opinion, gods who would empower their sinful desires and empower their desire for wickedness. So knowing that Nimrod was inspired by Satan to build this ziggurat, I think it's pretty safe to assume there was probably some intensely demonic activity taking place at the top of this structure that would seem to be implied. And some scholars point out another possible motive in building the tower. It also could have been a statement that if God ever flooded the world again, they would be ready. Not to repent, but ready to flee up this tower and survive the coming wrath of God. And the architecture involved was likely far more sophisticated than we think of. When we think of ancient peoples like this, we think of men hitting one rock with another rock, but their skills and, and abilities and intelligence was likely far beyond anything we can comprehend. And, and you'll find if you look throughout history that man is unquestionably getting dumber. You don't need to look through history to do that. You just need to go on the internet to figure that out, right? Or turn on your TV. But a good example is just go and read the writings of the world's most brilliant philosophers from today and then go back Go and try and read Plato. Go and try and read Aristotle. See if you can understand the first page that you read. Somebody once gave me a book, and they, that, that was their challenge. They gave me The Metaphysics by Aristotle. And they were like, just, just see if you can figure out anything that he's saying on the first page. And, and I read it. I couldn't figure out anything that he was saying. It was, it was pretty hilarious. And so back then, the closer you go to Eden, the more intelligent people are because there's less and less genetic corruption entering our uh, genetics as you go back in time, our DNA. So they were very smart for that reason, but also add to the fact that most people were still living a few hundred years at this time in all likelihood. So what does that mean? It means that you can devote more of your life to learning. It means that when you get into a skill or a trade or a specialty, you have more time to become incredibly skilled at it, more time to practice it, more time to apprentice the next generation. When you have the ability to be an apprentice for 30 years under someone who's been doing their craft for 200 years, you can imagine the level of skill you get to and the exponential amount of information and skill that gets accumulated as people are all communicating in a common language. Information and knowledge would have accumulated incredibly rapidly under those circumstances. Verse 5, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one and they all have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now, and then underline the rest of this verse, nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. It's incredible what a people can do when they are unified. You know, that's one of the reasons the Lord longs and loves to see his church dwelling in unity. Not unity with the world, but unity with each other. Because it's incredible what we can do when we all care about the same things and we're unified. Because it's also incredible what those who don't love the Lord can do when they're unified. Take a look at things like Nazi Germany. That's what's being described as taking place here in Babel. And it's what's going to happen after the church is raptured and Antichrist rises to power. The overwhelming majority of the world is going to rally around in unity this leader who is empowered and inspired by Satan. 
So the Lord looks down on Babel and he says, when man is unified like this, they're only limited by their imagination. And what's the problem with that? Well, the Lord himself said back in Genesis 8.21, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Evil from his youth. In other words, all man is going to do with his newfound unity and power, all he's going to do is engage in more and more evil, more and more depravity, more and more sin on a global scale. And do you realize, as a point of interest prophetically, do you realize we're living in the first generation since the Tower of Babel in which the entire world is returning to a single language? You might think, what are you talking about, Jeff? But with one click, you can translate an entire website into English. One click. We're not decades away from technology that makes conversation possible in other languages. We're years, not decades. We are years away from being able to converse face-to-face with people in another language. You've probably seen videos. There's already hardware that does this, and they're just fine-tuning it for widespread public use. But, But we're there. Language is not a barrier anymore. There's no technology that China has that we don't have because we don't speak Chinese. There's no barrier at all. The languages of math and technology have turned the world essentially back into a single language for the first time since Genesis chapter 10 and 11. And what do you think the world is going to do with that single language? Draw closer to the Lord? Of course not. Of course not. I find it very interesting that as the world becomes unified through technology, two of the most troubling, problematic, and pervasive uses of technology are, number one, sexual sin. I've said this before. If there's new technology, the first question we're asking is, how can we use this for sexual sin? Oh, we've made incredible breakthroughs, and and we now have technology that um, could help people that are handicapped and, and assist them. Could we use this for sex robots? Yes. That's what happens. That's the culture that we live in. And so we use technology to proliferate internet porn, to create things like Tinder and this hookup culture to help make sexual immorality more accessible, more widespread, easier, more consumable than ever. And then the second thing that's, that's pretty troubling is we use all this technology to increase surveillance of the population, don't we? All over the world, governments, private companies, surveillance want to know everything you're doing every second of the day. Which is very, very interesting because when Antichrist rises to power, I used to think, well, well, he's going to build this worldwide or revived Roman Empire-wide, Europe-wide surveillance system to keep track of people. And I'm like, he, no, he won't because it's already in existence. <laughs> he will simply take charge of what already exists. Every smart assistant in everybody's home, every uh, artificial intelligence that isn't in everybody's cell phone, every CCTV, the infrastructure will already exist when Antichrist gets there. It's already over most of Europe. Very, very interesting to me that the framework is already there. And so as the world becomes increasingly united through technology and math in this new common language, As we become limited only by our imaginations, what will we imagine? As the Lord said, the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Unity through technology is not saving the world. We know this. It's enslaving the world. Because we don't need to be saved from 
a lack of technology. We don't need to be saved from the evil that's out there. We need to be saved from the evil that's in here. And only Jesus can do that. And so now the Lord takes action in verse 7. He says, speaking among the Trinity, Come, let us go down and there confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord came down to destroy the scheme of Satan, which was being carried out by this Antichrist type Nimrod, just as the Lord will come down to the earth at the end of the great tribulation in the second coming to destroy the scheme of Satan, which will be carried out by Antichrist. Verse 8, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. And so in an instant, Babel becomes a term of derision. It becomes a term that we use today, Babel, to mean gibberish. It used to mean gateway to heaven or gateway to the gods. But because of the action of God, it's now used to describe a person who is babbling, a person who's talking gibberish. Man wouldn't scatter as the Lord had commanded, so the Lord scattered man. And in doing so, God was being merciful because he didn't wipe them out. He sent them out instead. And so now man was divided by language. And different languages developed different cultures. And as adaptation unfolded, you ended up having people groups with similar physical features for reasons we've talked about. So now people became divided by physical characteristics and languages, and this is essentially the birth of cultures around the world. And it's the reason we have these pockets of different ethnic groups around the world that we have today. This is the last part here. I'm going to wrap up with this. I'd like you to turn to Psalm chapter 2 with me, Psalm chapter 2 in your Bibles. And we're going to take a look at it together because I, I just found in my studies this week, it just so perfectly encapsulates the story of the Tower of Babel. Psalm chapter 2. If you open your Bible right in the middle, you're probably going to be in Proverbs or Psalms. Psalm chapter 2, it says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? A vain thing. I underline a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So in other words, the rulers of the earth are getting together, plotting in vain, saying, let's break free from God, let's become our own gods. And then I have this underline, I love this. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And I love that because what the Lord is saying is he's saying, you, you've tried to plot against me and yet I've still done what I want. I sent my son exactly the way that I wanted, exactly where I wanted him to go. And now Jesus begins to speak about what God the Father has determined for him. He says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. In other words, rulers of the earth, heads up. I've given my son Jesus total authority over you. You might want to tread carefully, which is what this next section is about. Now, therefore... In light of this, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, and I like this phrase too, but a little. And then underline this whole last sentence. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Church, it doesn't matter what the rulers of this earth plan. It doesn't matter what their ambitions are. The plans of the Lord are unstoppable. The Bible says a man makes his plans, but the will of the Lord prevails. Before the next Nimrod, before Antichrist rises to power, we will be taken by the Lord to be with the Lord. And when he returns to the earth to destroy Antichrist and take his throne in Jerusalem, we will be riding by his side. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Interestingly, there's only one thing in the Bible that is recorded as actually reaching from Babylon up to heaven. And it's the sins of Babylon, which are mentioned in Revelation 18.5 when the Lord comes down to destroy Babylon. You see, any system that elevates man to the position of God is destined for destruction. Any system that teaches man can ascend to God on his own merits is destined for destruction. Our hope is not that we can ascend to God, but that God descended to us. God came down in the form of the man, Jesus Christ, and through his greatness, through his might, through his power, we are saved, lifted up, and taken by him to join him in heaven. Our greatest potential is not realized through any earthly achievements. Our greatest potential is found in abiding in Christ, dwelling in Christ, resting in Christ. And so today, even as we worship for this last part of the service, let's rest in the finished work of Jesus. Take communion and thank him that the greatest thing about you, the greatest thing about us is not what we've done, but what he has done for us. Just take some time and abide in the place of gratitude for your salvation. And then rejoice that the plans of God are unstoppable. Not just the plans of God for the end times and the last chapter of this earth, but the plans of God are unstoppable for your life, for the life of your child. His plans are unstoppable. So put your confidence in that and find hope in that. Find peace in that. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you so much for your love and for your kindness and for your goodness to us, Lord. And thank you for your word which tells us the history of the world. Not just what happened, but why the world is the way it is today. Thank you for pulling back the curtain and revealing truth to us so that, Lord, we would not get engaged with battles and concerns and issues in the arena where the battle is not really being fought. Lord, thank you that these things are being determined by your unstoppable plans. And thank you that a prayer calling on your name is more powerful than anything that we could do in the physical realm here, God. So help us, Lord, to be people whose actions and whose prayer lives so that we really believe that and understand that. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.